you to open your Bible up to John chapter 17 and then to Psalm 119. I'd like to read, sneak in a reading here from the Gospel of John that's not in the bulletin. I actually intended to break from our John series for this morning that we might be reminded of the importance of God's Word as we begin a new education season. But breaking from our normal study in John, nevertheless, I'd like to read a portion from the Gospel of John chapter 17 in uh, what we call Christ's high priestly prayer, this prayer he offers up on the night of his arrest, John 17. Looking at Psalm 119 this morning, about the place of the word of God in the life of the believer. John 17 at verse 9, verse 9 down through verse 19. Jesus prays, saying, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. If you turn from that portion of God's word to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 at verse 9. The second section of this lengthy psalm that runs through the Hebrew alphabet, giving us A to Z, as it were, of praise and devotion to the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever and ever. Let's bow in prayer and ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, we bow before your word and we pray now that the spirit who breathed out that word would come and make that word a living word 
to our hearts and lives. Visit us today. Make us humble servants to listen to our master. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, people of God, the Apostle Paul told the Philippians that they were to be blameless and innocent children of God in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation. Jesus, as we just read in John 17, prayed to the Father, not that he would take out of the world his disciples, his people, but that he would protect them in the world. And he would protect them by the truth. That he'd sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. We begin, we've begun this morning a new education season, which for this congregation means that we start up Sunday school and catechism classes and Bible studies and kids clubs and all of that. Additionally, we have the ongoing opportunities of, of reading the Bible at home and personally and as a family and of, of attending to worship services and hearing the preaching of the word, which we confess to be the main means of grace that God gives to us. But it's fitting, I think, upon this occasion of a new education season to be reminded of the importance of God's word and the place that it has in the life of the Christian and to ask ourselves, what will I do with all these opportunities with God's word? With all these opportunities to help our children learn God's word. We know that God's a covenant Lord and that he imparts grace often along covenantal or family lines, right? The God who created the family is a God who works redemption through the family, right? And so and God is pleased. But, but the passing on of, of Christianity, it doesn't happen automatically. Our children don't inherit grace the way they might inherit their, their parents' physical characteristics. No, but all throughout the Bible, from Old to New Testament, God emphasizes the need to instruct the next generation, to teach them his commandments, to tell them the story of redemption. And so that's a work that we have to recommit ourselves to all the time, don't we? So reading this past week a book about the church by a, a notable reform minister who died some decades ago, but he tells in that book the story of himself attending a young people's convention a young people's conference of a relatively conservative church or denomination. And in the midst of his time at this conference, he began to realize that these young people that he's speaking with have very little knowledge of the Bible and very little understanding of Christian doctrine. In fact, he said it was abysmal, it was horrible. So finally, he said to one of the ministers of that denomination, he said, do you ministers, do you teach your young people Bible doctrine? And you know what the reply of the minister was? We used to. We used to. You know, that in a history book could be written over Western Christianity, couldn't it? If you visit Europe and all the great churches that used to be, we used to, could be the sign hanging over them. And in America today, in many places, right? The instruction of the youth and in Bible doctrine, catechism training, we used to. And family devotions and the home fathers teaching their children, we used to. And a Lord's Day devoted to the study of God's word, which traditionally has looked like two worship services. In many places, it's we used to. 
we should be very aware this morning that the instruction of God's word and the attending to that instruction doesn't just occur automatically, naturally. We have to recommit. We have to re-up every year, as it were. We, we have to say again, we're going to do this because it matters. We need to be reminded, all of us, we're no better than any other church or denomination. Our hearts grow cold. We get lazy. We get distracted. And we have to be reminded of our desperate need for God's word. Will we survive? Will the next generation be swallowed up by the godless powers of this age? We're living in an obviously corrupted generation. Will we be maintained as unblemished children of God? Well, not without the word. We need the word, and we need it in power and abundance. And that's what Psalm 119 is reminding us this morning. Let's look at these verses 9 through 16. And notice, first of all, the cleansing power of the word, and then the blessed teacher of the word, and then the sincere commitment to the word. Those three points this morning. Well, this section of Psalm 119 begins with that important question, how can a young man cleanse his way? Or it might be interpreted or read, how can a young man keep his way clean? How can he keep his way pure? How can he guard his way? As soon as you hear about the way, then you're taken all the way back to Psalm 1, right? Which had set the very entrance into the Psalms. It said there's two ways. There's the way the man who meditates on God's word, planted like a tree, bears fruit. The Lord knows that man. And there's the way of the wicked, the scorner, who's like chaff. The wind blows away. That man is under God's wrath. There's two ways. We've, we've come to a fork in the road. Two ways. But the way of purity, the way of holiness, the way of walking with God, how can a young man keep to that way? Psalm is not addressing just young men, but it's asking this question about young men, maybe because the young man stands in a place of tremendous life choices, right? Fundamental decisions are made in our youth that may well affect us for a lifetime. We know that the way a young tree is bent in its youth is often the way it grows. The scriptures tell us to remember our creator in the days of our youth. And so it's important for young people to be asking this question. And it's young people that might especially feel the tension. Young men might feel the the tension of particular sins, right, that they're prone to, of excesses. They have many strengths and opportunities and many desires. And purity is under this constant pressure. Paul had to tell Timothy, flee youthful lusts, right? There's such a thing as youthful lusts. There's the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and the boasting of what we have and do. And it's not just young men, but young women could uh, be given to their own ways, their own desires, their own vanities, their own lust to be lusted after. All of us know what it is to veer from God's ways. We all face struggles and want to be a law unto ourselves at times. And, and the question is asked, how can one who's at this critical moment, how can one who's facing tremendous pressure upon his purity, how can he stay pure? Is that a question you've asked this past week? If you haven't been asking that question lately... 
Well, the psalmist is asking it for you. God is asking it for you because you can't stay clean for very long in this world without knowing the answer to this question. How can I stay pure? And the answer is by taking heed according to your word. That's what Jesus Christ did. He walked in the light of God's word. Every young man who has, who has ruined his life, who has gotten dirty, has done so by neglecting the word of God. The word of God is the life of God's people, isn't it? The word of God is this great treasure that, that the living God has spoken from heaven, has given to us a word of grace and power and life. Jesus is so clear on that in his prayer to the Father. The only hope my disciples have in this world is your word, your truth. Sanctify them by that. Another psalm on the law of God, remember, is Psalm 19. And it says that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Says that by these judgments of God, your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there's great reward. So we can't make ourselves clean, and we can't keep ourselves clean. There's all kinds of self help books and gurus that can help you purge just about anything else, can help you purge the toxins from your body, they can help you purge your closet of old clothes, they can help you purge your finances of debt. But who can free us of the grip and temptation of sin? We need the word. And we need to surrender to that word. As John Calvin put it, there is nothing pure in our life until we have made a complete surrender of ourselves to the word of God. It's the word of God that uncovers the wickedness of sin to us shows us the, the pits that Satan has laid for us. It's the word of God that shows us the beauty of the Lord and his holiness. It's the word of God that puts up guardrails so we don't drive off the road. It's the word of God that sounds the warning alarm and the bright flashing lights don't go that way. It's the way of death. It's the word of God that lights our pathway. Shows us, opens it up. This is the way to walk with the Lord in the light of his countenance. When I was at college on Lookout Mountain, Georgia, there were caves in that mountain and the little mountains around it. And it was, it was one of the pastimes of some of the students to go spelunking or cave exploring. And one night I went with our hall, a bunch of guys on the hall, to go explore a cave. And the guys at the front of the pack led us deep into the cave. And through many crevices and crawling on our bellies under rocks and avoiding piles of bat dung and all these things. We got way into the cave or opened up a bit and then, and then somebody had the idea that we should all turn off our flashlights, so we did. And it was just utterly pitch black. And instantly the question arose, how would we ever get out of here if all of our flashlights died? How would we ever find our way back out of here? But you see... In this dirty world, the Lord has not left us without the light of his word. He hasn't told us to find our own way out. How can a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed according to your word, 
Not my word, not my thoughts, but what you have given from above. If we listen to that word, our life is preserved. If we don't, we will die. That's, that's really the, the division here that's found in the Psalms and all throughout the Proverbs. The way of the wise and the way of the fool. The way of listening to God's word, the way of rejecting God's word. It's the only two choices there are in the world. The fool who rejects the word of God will die. The wise who submits to the word will live. And that's all there is. Two pathways. And so we're to feel the the weight of the word of God. Proverbs 1 says, Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. A horrifying thing. Will my life yield to the word of God? Think about purity here, we think probably first about sexual purity, right? That's where we use the word purity most these days and for obvious reasons. And that's important. God wants our bodies and minds pure. Purity is a lot of other things, isn't it? It's about putting away selfishness, putting on service. It's about love for God and for neighbor. It's about putting away the love of money and the love of possessions. Psalmist prays, verse 10, with my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Every other way is dangerous and deadly, Lord. Let me not wander from the safe way. And then he prays, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. That verse is well known, isn't it? Verse 11, often used to encourage the memorization of scripture, which of course is a good thing. Something probably every one of us would say we could do a whole lot more of. In fact, it's helpful actually to read older writers and discover that our standards of memorization are very, very low in the history of the world. I've read several accounts of people who've memorized the whole of Psalm 119, the entire thing. One man says to him, it was the, of all the passages his mother taught him, it was the most tedious and irksome to him, but now it's become his most prized possession, Psalm 119. But that verse is not just encouraging the memorization of Scripture. It's talking about taking the Word of God to our hearts, hiding it deep within. If the Word doesn't have a firm hold in our hearts, then we will fall into sin. You can have a lot of Scripture memorized in your mind and not have it in your heart. But if it's not in your heart, then it doesn't control your life. We're to have the word in our heads and the word in our hearts, taking it to ourselves, loving it, believing it, submitting to it, and then we are well-armed for battle. Because the idea here of, of hiding the word in the heart or of storing it up in our hearts is not like we might store up our birth certificate or some really old photos in a drawer that we never look at, but the idea of storing it up here is storing it up for use. If I asked you this morning, where do you, where do you store your gasoline? You say, for my mower? No, for your car. Where do you store your gas for your car? You'd look at me and say, what? You mean the gas in my gas tank? Yeah. You store it there to use it. You don't even think of it as storing it there. It's, it's there to be used. The food, the food in your cupboard, the cereal box are there to be eaten. Soldiers are sent into battle with ammo. They store up the ammo to use it. 
And that's the idea here, that, that the word is so much a part of my, my life, my mind, my inner being, that now when temptation comes, I hear the word speaking to me. I use the word in battle as Christ did. It is written, he told Satan, be gone. So we're to store up that word within, not just outward precept, but inward power. Boys and girls, maybe you've noticed as you drive around Salem that there are some garden plots. Some out here, actually, behind the church. Sometimes there's community garden plots, and they give a little section of land to anybody who wants it to use for a garden. And and sometimes you notice that among the garden plots, there are some plots that were never planted this year. There's some plots that were planted but now are neglected, overrun with weeds. And there are some plots that are well-maintained. And there's fruit, and there's beauty. To you boys and girls and all of you young people, God has given you a plot. Your heart, God has given you a plot to be tended and to be cultivated. And as you're growing up now, it's not for you to say that's for my parents to do, but for you to take up ownership and responsibility and saying this is the plot that God has given to me. This is the garden I must tend, my own heart. Learning to hate sin and say no to it, learning to say yes to God and to take in his word and to drink and eat deeply of that word. And for us parents, there's a calling, isn't there, to help our children. We are often feeling the tyranny of the urgent where the most important matters are neglected because the basketball schedule calls, the baseball schedule calls, the the desires of our children, what they want to do, what they feel they need to do calls. But you know, when school is all over and all the baseball ribbons are tucked away in a box in the attic, what's going to matter is whether our children know the word of the Lord and have taken it to heart. And that's all that's going to matter. Well, if it seems impossible, there's good news. This cleansing word isn't left just to parents to teach. But there is a blessed teacher of the word, the Lord himself. Let's look at verse 12, secondly. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Blessed are you, David... If it's David who writes this, he breaks into praise. Praise be to you, O Lord. You're so gracious. You're so good. You're so great. What does it mean to be blessed? That's the literal translation here, blessed. It means to be full, eternally full and happy. Our God is an eternally full and infinite happy God in himself. He enjoys himself, Father, Son, and Spirit in perfect fellowship and unity. God is infinitely happy. He doesn't need us or our service to make him full. He is the overflowing fountain, isn't he? And the amazing thing is that he overflows to bless us. He who is all blessedness abounds to bless us. And it's not that we deserve it. We didn't deserve, even when we were perfect in the garden, we didn't deserve that God should stoop down to love us and commune with us. But how much the more, how much the less, having rejected God and offended God, how much less do we deserve that God should pour out blessing upon us? 
And yet, Psalm 119 is praying, Lord, because you're blessed, teach me the way of your blessedness. You ever met somebody who's always happy, who seems to abound in life or joy or peace, and you, you, you want to know their secret? What is it? How do you do it? But if you look upon God, who is the infinitely full God, all joy, all peace, all happiness, then you say, Lord, teach me your ways. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. Teach me your ways. The word blessed reappears in the New Testament as the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1 verse 11, and speaks of the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The glorious gospel of the blessed God. Yeah, it is. It's a gospel. It's good news. It's that we had rejected the word of God in the garden. We had despised God's word. We deserved God's wrath. But the good news of the blessed God that he sought us again and spoke a word of promise and a word of life. And so our God contains all happiness and he he bestows happiness upon us. And so you can understand why, why the psalmist here, as soon as he's going to pray to God to teach me his ways, he says, blessed are you. How full you are, O God, that you would stoop to me and give me your word and instruct me in your word. That you would come to us miserable sinners and say, I will to make you happy again. That's what he does. He comes to us in Christ and he says, I will to make you happy again. That's my decision. And God promises Jeremiah 31, he's going to write the law upon our hearts. And Ezekiel chapter 36, that he's going to put his spirit within us. He's going to work this. And all of this, of course, purchased for us at the cost of Christ Jesus. As Isaiah says, that we all, like sheep, have, have gone astray. We've left the way. We've turned to our own ways. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of our stubborn deviations, all of our guilt has been laid upon Jesus. And he, on the cross, did not get to experience God as all blessedness, all happiness, but he suffered the eternal curse for our sins. That's the kind of God that the psalmist writes of here. The blessed God who abounds with grace to sinners. Glorious gospel of the blessed God. And as we, we lift up our prayer then to God, who are we praying to when we, when we say in verse 12, Blessed are you, O Lord, covenant God, Jehovah. Blessed are you. Teach me your statutes. Is this an old weary teacher? He's taught the same course for 39 years. He's bored with the material. He's bored with his students, and he's just trying to make it to retirement. Maybe you had a teacher like that in school or in college. Just a broken record. No, that's not the teacher we're praying to here. This is the God who delights in and rejoices in his gospel and who loves to instruct his children in his ways, who, who loves to proclaim to us the good news that he himself has written and performed. Blessed are you. And what has God given to us then as our teacher? He's given to us his own beloved son, whom, whom we confess to be our chief prophet and teacher, fully reveals to us the secret counsel of God concerning our salvation. God has given to us the, 
the greatest of all teachers. He has given to us the Son of God from heaven. We have to remember that. Our education director has been busy securing teachers, and it's wonderful, again, that God's provided willing people to teach all the classes of the year, but never forget who our, who our chief prophet and teacher is. The one who says in Hebrews 1, verse 12, I will declare your name to my brothers. He's the most knowledgeable teacher, and he's the most gracious teacher. I wonder if there's anybody here today who would say, you know, I'm a little nervous to pray, verse 12, teach me your statutes, because I might just get pounded into the dust. Thinking back to college, there was a course I wanted to take my senior year of college by a a professor who was unique. He had done some interesting work uh, politically and in terms of environmental studies and uh, economy and welfare reform and all these things and written some books and and I really want to take his class, but I heard that his class was tough. The reading list was long, and I chickened out. I said, I do not want to spend my senior year in misery. And I always regret that. Christ has exceedingly high standards, doesn't he? But you wouldn't call him a tough teacher. He's a merciful teacher. You have to remember that he's not just our chief prophet, but he's our only high priest who bears our flesh and our nature. Right? He's sympathetic. He was born of a woman. He learned obedience by the things he suffered. He, he went through the, the area of life five years old and six years old. He knows what it is to be a ten-year-old. He, he was a 15-year-old boy with testosterone coursing through his body. He's been here. Been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He's merciful. Maybe you're overwhelmed by your failures today. You should always remember as you read Psalm 119, and all of us have to read these verses and say, on the one hand, I, it resonates with my soul. This is how I feel about God's word. On the other hand, to say, man, I wish this was true of me. I, I fall so far short. But you remember the whole psalm ends. In the last verse there of, the, of Psalm 119 says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. We have but a small beginning in love for God's word as we live upon the earth. And Jesus knows that. But he is always a faithful shepherd to each one of his sheep. Many schools try to boast of their student-to-teacher ratio or their teacher-to-student ratio. You know, we've only got 10 students in the class. There's lots of personal attention. But in the kingdom of Christ, it's a one-to-one ratio. Jesus himself personally attends to every one of his saints. I know my sheep and am known by my own. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And so we pray, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. To be taught of the Lord Jesus, Ephesians 4. If you've heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off your old conduct, put on the new man. That's really the question we face as we 
pray the prayer of verse 12 is, am I willing to yield, to forsake my way of sinful pleasures? If we don't come to Christ willing to do that, if we're not willing to be taught by Christ, then our prayers are superficial, right? And they're insincere. Verse 12 says, teach me your statutes. And statutes speak of that which has binding force and, and permanence. We're not going to come to this teacher and say, you know, I'd like you to adjust the course schedule, knock off some readings, you know, uh, change your standards, uh, bend your law to fit my life, accommodate me because I don't want to part with this sin. It's not the kind of teacher you're going to find. His word is firm. His word is truth. His word reflects his own character. He cannot change. But he can change you. And he can change me. He's the blessed Lord, full of mercy. And he would change us. He teaches us that word by his scriptures and the power of his spirit. And he teaches us that word in the community of the saints, where we need to be. Had a great conversation, well, had an enjoyable conversation with a man recently who was very polite and kind and explained that he was a Christian. Then he began to explain to me his personal beliefs, that his study of his word had led him to believe that every prophecy in Scripture is fulfilled. I said, what about the return of Jesus? He said, well, I think that's already fulfilled. And I said to him, I said, that stands quite apart from everything the church has believed throughout the ages. I tried to remind him of our need to interpret the word in the community of the saints. Where the Spirit's been poured out. Not that the church has never erred, but it is not safe to be apart from God's people. And the office bearers he's instituted. And without considering the history of the Christian church where the Spirit has led her, Teach me your ways, O Lord. We pray this together. We pray this, we sing this as a church. Teach me your statutes. Finally, this morning, let's note briefly here the sincere commitment to the word. The sincere commitment. Verse 13, with my lips I've declared all the judgments of your mouth. So as the Lord teaches us, the, the heart wants to express that. It wants to proclaim it. It wants to teach others. Verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. The world may be in love with, with money and possessions, but your word is more priceless to me. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I'm not just going to muse about the things of this earth and talk and talk about all the things that are passing away. I'm going to meditate and ponder the truth of God, train my mind in it. In verse 16, I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I will delight myself in your statutes. A commitment. I'm going to learn to love your word. Remember in uh, Proverbs, we're called, the man is called to delight himself in, in the wife of his youth. A man might say, you know, I don't love her anymore. And God would say, start loving her. Work at delighting in her. Years ago, I went to the Chicago Art Museum, and we, the place is big, and so we're just rushing from room to room, room to room, trying to see it all. And then I began to notice that there are benches, 
And there were people seated on benches staring at one single painting for many, many minutes. So that I sat down and I discovered something. That these paintings in the art museum are there for a reason. You can actually sit and stare at them and begin to realize magnificent detail, stunning detail. God's word is greater than any art painting. If you meditate on it, if you pray over it, if you ponder it, if you speak of it, you can grow in delight. So we have a calling to do fight for delight, to fight for delight, and to wrestle at that. This then is our summons from the word of God to value the word of God. And at the beginning of an education season, but really every day of our lives, to remind ourselves and to recommit to this. So that over IRC will not be written a lot of we used to's. Not because we're good people or better people. We don't come to Lord's Supper table this morning to declare that we're righteous in ourselves. We, we come to this table to confess, Lord, I've been cold to your word. I've made many excuses. Why well, I don't have time and don't have time and don't have time. I've avoided your word in anger or fear or boredom. Come to Jesus Christ, teacher and high priest, to say, I haven't been a good student. I need your grace. Need your mercies. I, I need Christ the Good Shepherd both to be my sacrifice and to be my guide, to wash me clean and to lead me in the pastures, the green pastures of his word. And you know what? We come to the table this morning saying, Lord Jesus, only you, this isn't a human work, only you can give me these desires and this commitment to walk in your ways. But Lord, if you would cause me to taste and see that you are good, to taste of your goodness, then then Lord, by your grace, I will hunger more. And instead of a bunch of we used to do that and we used to do that, we could have much better we used tos. Are you bored when you come to worship? I used to be. Are family devotions tedious? They used to be. Is reading God's word something you used to try to avoid? Used to be. But in Christ, I'm finding a new way. Shepherd's got me by the hand. His word is becoming attractive to me. It's alluring. It's drawing me. I taste it. I see it. It's beautiful. It's enlivening. And it fills me. The words of the psalmist are coming true in me. I delight myself in your statutes. This is what the Lord Jesus works. The only way to know God is to know him by his word. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Jesus said, communion with the Lord is communion in his word. And in this corrupt world, what will keep us clean? Walking with Jesus in the light of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how we need your word. We acknowledge that we do not value it as much as we should. We are thankful for what you have done in our hearts, that you've drawn us today. Here we are by your mercies and grace. And we need you for tomorrow and the next day. 
Our children need you. Our young people need you. Our young adults need you. They need your word. They need submission to it. They need hunger for it. Oh, great shepherd, we pray that you administer to us. Also now in this supper, in your name we pray. Amen.